standing in honor of the reading of God's Word. And before I read it this morning, let me introduce our, our preacher this morning who comes as the servant of the Lord to open the Word for us. Uh, Pastor, Doctor, the Right Reverend Mike Abendroth is a, a longtime friend of this. He's going to rebuke me for using that last one. Somebody once introduced Spurgeon as the Reverend Charles Spurgeon, and he rebuked them. He said, there is nothing to be revered about me. The only thing that we should give reverence to is the holy God of creation and his holy word. So let me apologize for (laughs) trying to ascribe that to my brother here who comes humbly in the name of the Lord. (laughs) Uh, Mike has been a longtime friend of our church. He has preached in our church for us many times in the past. And he is a a mighty servant of God who comes this morning simply to point the finger to Jesus Christ and extol the great grace of Jesus Christ by which we all have been saved and by which we all stand. So I'm not going to give him any more glory as he comes to give the glory to Christ. But let me read the the word this morning. He's going to be proclaiming it to us from Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. So let me read uh, the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1 in preparation. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Say amen. 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 And you may be seated this morning. Before we get into the message, dear congregation, I just wanted to say that I love Trinity Bible Church. 
for many reasons. Uh, in some of my health trials, you have prayed for me. You have ministered to my children and my wife, uh, given us friendship and fellowship as we're here most summers coming from Massachusetts. And so I just want to say thank you. But I especially love your church because your pastor preaches the Bible verse by verse and shows you Christ every week. Aren't you glad for that? You've got to go a long ways to find that in certain places. And uh, Pastor Steve didn't ask me to do this, but I'm asking you to do this. Uh, Now Steve's got uh, a heavy load, right, when uh, the Carlsons are gone. I hope you can figure out a way to encourage your pastor. If you're a regular member here or uh, someone who comes regularly, uh, I want you to figure out a way. What can I do to encourage Pastor Steve and Wendy? And uh, would you even try to do that this week? I, don't, I know we don't raise hands in this church very often, except for the benediction, right? <laughs> Would you please raise your hand if you'll encourage Pastor Stephen Wendy some way this week. Good. They always do. <laughs> they always, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful congregation. I think this is my 21st out of 22 years in a row preaching in the summer. Last year was an asterisk, right? The entire year was with COVID, so... If you have a a physical Bible, I'm sure you have some favorite passages, and you just love to go to the Psalms, or you love to go to Ephesians, or you think, oh, the Proverbs are my my friend. And if you had a Bible and you just would open the Bible just naturally, I wonder if it would go to your favorite spot. And today we're going to go to one of those passages that many of you, when you just open your Bible, it opens to Romans chapter 1. So take your Bibles and turn there, if you would. This is not my regular preaching Bible, so I had to put a crease in it this morning so it would, in front of you, fall open to Romans chapter 1. As a pastor and maybe even as a a layperson, you read the Bible, and I remember speaking of Spurgeon, he used to say often, certain verses he'd read in the Bible, they seemed to shout out, preach me, don't forget about me. Tell that dear congregation in Felton about me this summer when you're going to preach. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a very familiar passage, but one I think you'll be encouraged by, just to remind yourself of the most important truth in all the world about the Lord Jesus found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It has been said of Romans that it is the most profound piece of writing in existence. It has been said of Romans that if any minister wants to strengthen his people, he can hardly do better than to give them a massive dose of Romans. William Tyndale, who died translating Romans into English along with other New Testament books, said of Romans, No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. Is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasures of spiritual things lieth hid therein. And all of Romans chapters 1 through 11 lead not just to a doctrinal, precise, theological treatise, but it leads to what at the, at the end of Romans chapter 11? This, this doctrine is meant to lead you somewhere. And it's not to self, it's not to the world, it's to lead you to Paul's praise-inducing thoughts. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him 
And to him are what? All things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here's what we're going to do today, dear congregation, for an outline. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and I'm going to ask you a series of questions designed for you to understand the text better. Series of questions, and there are going to be nine questions. And I know if you're younger, you're probably going to say he spent five minutes on the first question, 15 minutes on the second. This is going to be long sermon, and you would be right. (laughs) But as every pastor would admit, the later questions or points in the sermon go a little faster. So just to have some hooks to put your mind onto to help you with progress of the sermon, we're going to look at nine questions designed for you to understand Romans 1, 16, and 17 better so that you might... Rest in the Lord Jesus and trust in Him and then ultimately praise Him for His great glory. Question number one. And by the way, I'm doing questions because Paul almost does a Q&A format in this very book, does he not? He's anticipating objections by people saying, well, that doctrine means this. Oh, I'd like to raise my hand and, and ask a question. You know, when my kids were little and they'd get so tired keeping their arms up around the dinner table waiting for me to call on them, they did this thing, right, to kind of... And, that, and that's almost what Romans is like. Paul is anticipating these questions that come up and so he answers them. So even the outline I'm trying to make almost fit in with the theme or the genre, if you will, of Romans. A series of questions designed for you to grasp and remember and trust in and praise the great God, as Pastor Steve said, our great triune God. Question number one, what is the theme of Romans? Question number one, what is the theme of Romans? And we see it right here. This, matter of fact, is the theme. It's a good summary of all of the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. If you can understand this passage, I think you understand all of Romans as a theme. And by the way, you'll understand Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, and the rest of the Pauline books of the Bible, because this is the core of everything. If I had to ask you what's one word that describes Romans, you would say righteousness. Who said righteousness? I thought I heard it whispered. Yes? Oh, you, Luke said righteousness. Okay, good. And, and, and even if you kind of look at Romans, you think, well, the first two and a half chapters, we have no righteousness and we need righteousness. In chapter 3 at the end and 4 and 5, God provides righteousness through His Son. How's that righteousness lived out, as it were, in sanctification chapters of 6 and 7? Righteousness is secured, chapter 8, you'll never lose it. It's all been sovereignly orchestrated, verses uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, you, you have righteousness revealed in this book. This is Paul's theology as a whole. Question number two. What should be your attitude regarding the gospel What's your attitude regarding the gospel? You'll see many, many people, uh, they'll kind of fumble a little bit or punt, even evangelical pastors, when the microphone is handed to them in front of a CNN news camera, and are they proud about Jesus? Are they confident about Jesus? Can't they wait to tell people about Jesus? Or are they reticent? If you were Paul, what would your attitude be? I mean, you show up in a city, and you ask for two places, because you'll know you're going to be there soon. Where's the synagogue so I can preach Christ from the Old Testament? And where's the jail? Because I'm going there next. (laughs) 
Paul has been mocked, scorned, stoned, jailed, jeered at. And so you think maybe, you know, he might want to back off a little bit. You know, this is kind of like a new culture at Santa Cruz, and we've got to come across a certain way. And here we have this exclusive gospel. Jesus is the only way. And Paul knew that from the very beginning. Even when he was an unbeliever, he would watch what would happen with Stephen. And then he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And what does Paul say about the gospel? And this should be our attitude. I know it's yours, dear church. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In this plural world, in this post-Christian world, in this this is my truth world, my feelings are my truth world, Paul says with a great declaration, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I like figures of speech. It's kind of fun to learn. And this is a figure of speech. Does anybody know what the figure of speech is here? It's called a litotes. Kind of fun to say, but it's written out L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It looks like litotes. You know, if somebody doesn't know what they're doing, they talk about Socrats. If you don't know what you're doing, you'll say litotes, but this is a litotes. Say, what does that mean? A litotes is I'm going to set forth something positive by stating it in a negative way. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the negative side. Instead, I'm what? I'm proud of the gospel. I'm confident of the gospel. I'm not going to be embarrassed. Jesus on the cross and those thieves, he saved others. He can't save himself. Come down now off the cross and we'll believe you. This message is offensive. Jewish people want signs. Greek people want what? Wisdom. You mean to tell me Jesus is the only way? And Paul says, do you know what? Yes, because it's the truth of God. This is the truth, and so I'm not going to be ashamed of this truth. The theologian B.B. Warfield said, A dozen ignorant peasants proclaiming a crucified Jew as the founder of a new faith, bearing as the symbol of their worship an instrument which was the sign of slavery and crime, preaching what must have seemed an absurd doctrine of humility, loved enemies, graces undreamed of, demanding what must have seen an absurd worship for one who had died like a malefactor, and making what must have seemed like an absurd promise of everlasting life through one who had himself died, and that between two thieves. So, dear congregation, I want you to continue to be proud of the gospel and not humiliated by the gospel or afraid to talk about the gospel, not feeling shame about the gospel. These days don't seem very different than the old days. In the old days, 2,000 years ago, people would look at Christians and they would go, cannibals, right? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what they do behind those doors. That's what they do in the caves. That's what they do in their secret meetings. They're cannibals. And not only that, they have these love feasts and they have these big kind of like inappropriate parties. Those Christians, they're too narrow, they're too bigoted, they're not loving, they're not tolerant, they're not inclusive enough. And yet Paul said, I am going to go to Corinth, and before I ever get there, I'm going to make a determination. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, I determined ahead of time, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm thankful, congregation, that you're bold and you're unapologetically Christ-centered at this church. Question three, what is the gospel? The theme of Romans is right here. It's the righteousness of God. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, and neither are you, and let's never be. And number three, what is the gospel? 
He says right there in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Is this the gospel? God helps those who help themselves. 82% of Americans think that is from the Bible. And it comes right from medieval era, where in the medieval times they would say things like, God will not deny His grace to those who do what lies within their power. And if that's true, is that good news? How are you doing this week? The gospel simply means good news. It means glad tidings. It means something that you'll stand on your tiptoes to announce. We have good news. The surgery went well for a little rain. It made me cry thinking, that is a good phone call to get. That's good news. And the word gospel means good news. And the good news is not be like Jesus, have purpose in your life, have a relationship with God, have your best life now, be baptized, feed the poor, speak in tongues, let Jesus be on the throne of your heart, fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, say the sinner's prayer, make Jesus your Lord, decide for Jesus, let go and let God. I need to take a breath. I mean, we just keep putting one thing after another after another on there. Those things aren't good news. Some of them might be true, but they're not good news. Even, dear congregation, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, that's not good news. It's from a good father who gives us the law, but that's not good news. So you say, well, what is the good news? I mean, law isn't good news unless you can perfectly keep it. So what in the world, in an era where you need good news, what is good news? And Paul, and I'm thankful Steve read this earlier, Paul hints a little bit of this, some of this good news. Not completely, but a little bit. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul has all kinds of salutations in his letters, and this is a really Christ-centered one. This is a good news-centered one. So before we look at 1.16 and talk a little bit more about what gospel means, he tells us about the Lord Jesus, these good tidings, what makes a, heart, a man's heart glad. And Tyndale said, makes him sing and leap and dance for joy. I'm sorry to talk about dancing in the Baptist church here. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1, we're thinking through what is the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And the first hint we get there is this good news is not about an emperor. It's not from an emperor. That would be typical good news back in the Roman days. This is about God. It's his gospel. He's the one that determines what it is. It's from him. It's about him. This is God's gospel. Not only that, verse 2, while it's news, it's good news, it's not new news. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's attitude is not replace the Old Testament, discard the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't mean anything. We're all in the New Testament era. Paul says, you know, there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament because we have one divine author. And even back in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see this first gospel. You'll see hints of there's going to be someone who destroys Satan and sin and death and hell. This is promised beforehand. This is old news, but it's good news. And it's not a break with the past. It's a consummation of all of the Old Testament. I love the way Luther talked 
Luther talked Twitter talk is what Luther talked often. Christianity did not originate by accident or in the fate of the stars, as many empty-headed people presume. But it became what it was to be by the certain counsel and premeditated ordination of God. In other words, it started when God began to reveal Himself, we, we would see in the Bible. And even started before, if I could be technically correct, in the eternal counsel of the triune God the Father and the Son, with the Spirit bearing witness to go rescue God's people, the elect. The seed of the woman shall break the serpent's head is not from the New Testament, although it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And even if you look back down at chapter 1, verse 17, continuity between old and new, what does he quote there? The righteous shall live by faith comes from an Old Testament prophet, does it not? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I love Paul in Acts 28. said, From morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. John chapter 5 is the same thing. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus. Not only that, what's the gospel? The gospel is God's gospel. The gospel is old news, but it's still good news. And now he begins to talk about Jesus. I regularly, dear congregation, when I think of the word gospel, I think about it's the good news about a person. And so when I hear gospel, I'm thinking, oh, good news about the triune God, and particularly here, good news about a person. What do we know about this God-man? Concerning his son, and now we learn that he's human. Right? He, he added humanity that he might represent us that he might obey the law for us, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus is truly human. Jesus is perfectly human. Jesus needs to be because we need a representative. Who Remember the language of Job? Job is, is writing probably the first book in all the Bible, and he's anticipating what we should look for in the rest of the whole Bible. And he said, you know, here's what I'm going to need because I'm a sinner. I'm going to need somebody to put their hand on God, as it were, figuratively speaking, and put his other hand on me, so Job 9, he, that man, could be an umpire, a mediator, an advocate, who could say, you know what, I can put my hand on God, truly God, and I can put my hand on man, I'm truly man, to make sure I can have reconciliation. You've got to have Jesus as truly man. And that's what he says here, according to the flesh. We're talking about the incarnation. Truly man. The Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Belgic Confession, talking about the Incarnation. God fulfilled the promise which He had made to the early fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets. And He sent His only and eternal Son into the world. The Son took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And so we have the God-man, truly man, God with us. But not only that, you see His deity proclaimed here in verse 4, do you not? And was declared to be the Son of God. I mean, He is the eternal Son of God, but you want to know the defining moment? You want to know where it's climax, where you see with all eyes glued on what's going on, Jesus is the Son of God? When was that? 
Paul said, in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. The word marked out there or distinguished is horizon. You look at the horizon and you think there's a demarcation between sky and earth. The demarcation between deity and non-deity is deity raises itself from the dead. Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father raised him. The Spirit raised him. Let me ask you this. If someone came to you and said, a lot of people never read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they'll read you. You're the fifth gospel, so live a holy life. What would you say? Well, if you're from New England like me, you just rebuke them. <laughs> I would say, do you imagine? Good news is something to be proclaimed. I'm not the fifth gospel. Ask my wife. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Mike. And even there, it's the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're not the fifth gospel. You're not the gospel somehow incarnate. You should be able to preach the gospel about the life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus without ever mentioning your name. Could you do that? Graham Goldsworthy said, If something is not about what God did and through the historical Jesus 2,000 years ago, it's not the gospel. Is this a gospel statement? Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, for unto you this day in the city of David a Savior is Christ Jesus the Lord, and He's born. That's good news. The good news is, dear congregation, your pastor teaches you this every single week, that God, the triune God, gives, forgives, promises, comforts, assures, bestows, Offers, strengthens, saves, redeems, reconciles. While the law says you're a sinner, the gospel says Jesus Christ comes in the world to save sinners. It's about the Lord Jesus. It's about what God in Christ did on behalf of sinners. It offers. It gives. Now, when I was a kid, I watched a show called Casper the Friendly Ghost. Sorry. Kim, my wife, wasn't allowed to watch Bewitched or Casper or anything like that. Probably wise. <laughs> There's a theologian that I like. His name's Casper Olivianus. So I call him Casper the Friendly Olivianus. <laughs> Pull it up on Google and read about him sometime. Here's what Casper Olivianus said about good news. The gospel, or good news, that delights the heart of a poor condemned sinner is a revelation of the fatherly and immutable will of God in which he promised us who are unworthy is this good news? All our sins have been washed away and pardoned, not just for the rest of our lives, but indeed forever. He promises this by giving His Son to die for us and by raising Him. And He applies it to us by grace. That's good news. Down in verse 17, if you go back to our passage today, there's something besides the death of Christ, of course, that's good news. I think he hints at it here in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We know with this church, and you've been taught plainly and often, that while the death of Christ is good news for sinners, he also lived for us, did he not? 
The way I describe it often is if I think of, of why Jesus did not just come down on Friday and die and then go to heaven on Sunday. Why did he live his entire life? Why was he baptized by John the Apostle? I mean, of John the Baptist. Why did he do all these things? Matter of fact, I keep stepping back here and I'm going to be John the Baptist here in a moment. <laughs> One time there was a guest preacher at a church that I was at and I was in the front row and this preacher was about 80 years old and I knew he was going to fall in the baptismal and I thought, God, you're super providential because I took lifeguarding lessons when I was younger, so I was thankful. <laughs> Put that on your resume, rescued 80-year-old out of baptismal font. Now, if I was in New England, I would say something like this. We have snowblowers, and they have forward, neutral, and reverse. Or if I was in California 25 years ago, when you had lawns, I would say there's forward, neutral, and reverse. So Adam's in the garden. He's in neutral, and God says, obey me. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. And Adam, our federal head, the one that God designed to represent us, uh, the public person, as it were, he's supposed to go forward. And what does Adam do? He's in neutral. He doesn't go forward. He goes backward, does he not? Doesn't even put the clutch in. Just jams in and disobeys God. <laughs> God kills an animal to cover Adam's sin. as a great picture of what's going to happen with substitution later. And God forgives Adam of all his sins. But Adam's a created being and he's supposed to obey. So guess what? We need a later Adam, the last Adam, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's also a public person. And so he pays for our sins of iniquity, transgressions, and also lives the life we're supposed to live. That's what he's talking about here. Hinting here, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther hated this verse. He hated God for this verse for so many years. Why? Because it, he knew it's righteousness of God. God is righteous. I am not right. I don't do the right thing. I don't obey like I'm supposed to. And then he realized, while it's true God's righteous, he also gives righteousness. Because Jesus, unlike Adam, did the right thing. And Jesus gets credit for our doing of the wrong thing, sin, and we get credit for doing the right thing by faith. And Paul will talk about that later in chapter 3 and chapter 5, and it's called justification. He reckons righteousness to us that Christ Jesus has earned. One confession said, Jesus is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. He did not need to obey for himself. He's already perfectly righteous, but he did it for us. This is called the active obedience of Jesus. And we sang about it earlier, did we not? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. When I hear the word gospel, I think good news about what the triune God has done, especially as we think today, the second person, the Lord Jesus. Number four, why is the gospel powerful? Back to verse 16. He calls it powerful. What's he doing there? I'm not ashamed of the good news about Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He calls it powerful. Why is it powerful? 
Well, you could say things like, it makes alive. It, it regenerates. It takes from death to life. It causes you to be born again. It has power. How do you, how do you get rid of someone's sinful nature? I've probably told you the story before and ashamed of it, but the Lord had worked through that to show me. I remember when Kim and I were first married I, uh, 32 years ago. I'm not a Christian. I got mad at her. I took the, the, the cabinet and I slammed it down the dresser. And uh, the good news about Ikea cabinets is they're cheap. Bad news, they're cheap. And it just shattered. And she looked at me. And, I, and looking back on it now, it's like, you know what? I've got an anger problem. But that's not the, really, the real issue. I don't have an anger problem. I'm the problem. I mean, if you're going to go get anger management, and you're going to go get help. But where, where do I go if I am the problem innately, inherently? And all of a sudden, you've got the power of the gospel. You think about Paul's life. Think about your life, dear Christian. Not seeking, not searching, going the wrong way, in love with sin, in love with the world, in love with everything else. And all of a sudden, there was an interruption. There was the power of God. Calvin said this, it's very interesting to me. Whenever the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came into the midst of us. And you're like, yeah, but I'm talking to that person there, my son or daughter or parent or drug addict on the street. And, you know, these are just some words about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection and sin burying and God loves sinners. And I'm talking to them and it's just like, I'm just talking. Dear friends, if you want to study evangelistic apologetics, and worldviews, fine. But deep down, never forget, when you're preaching the gospel to that loved one, our stranger on the street, the gospel is powerful, and at the sovereign decree of God, it's over for them. How does God make Christians? You're a Christian. You say, what do you mean by that? Listen to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, you know how God makes light? Let there be light. His words are powerful because He's powerful. How does God make Christians? Through the preaching of the good news about Jesus. And then He makes them Christians by ex nihilo, divine sovereign intervention. When I, when I think about the power of God into salvation, it makes me encouraged to evangelize. Because when that light goes on through the preaching of the gospel, it goes on. There's power. There's sovereign power. There's established power. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Great is Diana of Ephesus. Have you ever seen Diana? How do you take people who would do that for hours upon hours, upon day, upon month, upon year, idol, idols worshiping, and all of a sudden Paul comes with a message, and it's over because the gospel is powerful. You can look back in your own life and say the idolatry, the sin, the stench, all that stuff that I thought was good, God one day made me a Christian. 1 Peter chapter 1, God caused you to be born again. So you get to tell people about Jesus. You don't have to coerce them. You don't have to say anything else except let me tell you about a Savior who loved me ere I knew him, as the hymn said. Maybe my favorite story since we're talking Spurgeon, Pastor Steve. There was a, a pastor and he began preaching. Spurgeon talked about this preacher who was a mainline preacher and not saved. Spurgeon, by God's grace, he began to feel the power of the Holy Spirit and force of divine truth. He begins preaching the gospel. He didn't believe it, but he's preaching it. 
Spurgeon, he so spoke that a Methodist in the congregation called out. By the way, when Methodists call out, it's big. <laughs> the Greek for Methodist is, I sit on my hands. The parson is converted. The parson is converted. The pastor is converted. And then the text says, they all sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow. They're Christian. We don't change the gospel and say, well, how are we going to do this for this particular person? Just in love, preach the gospel to these people. And when God wants to save and wills to save, the gospel's powerful. I'm thankful that my sin, my weakness, doesn't handicap the gospel. Was the person who preached the gospel to you and prayed for you a perfect person? They could have been very fleshly, but they knew the gospel and they preached to you. And at God's will, it was powerful. Question five. How do you receive this good news? How do you receive the good news of forgiveness and salvation and reconciliation? Well, we see it right there in our text, do we not? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, from faith for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. Believes, faith, faith, faith. Are we justified by works? Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, no, three different times. But it is through faith. If I had to ask you what is saving faith, what would you say? I hope you would not say it's a commitment, it's a yielding, it's a submission, it's a, a, a treasuring, it's a, a delighting in. Those are good for Christians to do. But I don't see one of those words here. I see trust, I see believe, I see a synonym of rest and rely. Saving faith is knowledge. You have to know the subject. Ascent, not ascent like climbing a ladder, but ascent like I'm agreeing with. And then a trust. It's like a fiduciary institution where you trust them with your riches. Receiving and resting upon Him alone. Verse 17 has been argued by different commentaries. Uh, what does it mean from faith to faith? I mean, was it faith in the law, now faith in the gospel? I think it's just a figure of a rhetorical speech that Paul is simply saying, it's nothing but faith. The way you receive the benefits of Jesus is through the instrument of faith. That's it. Only faith. Because faith is not a work. It doesn't, it, it, it's not salvific. Faith is simply an instrument where I receive the benefits of the Lord Jesus. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And, and we've all been taught, have we not, that even that faith, Ephesians 2, we read earlier today, and Philippians chapter 1, is a gift of God. No man comes to the Father, Jesus said, except he who sent me draws him. Horatius Bonar said, faith connects us with the righteousness and is therefore totally distinct from it. To confound the one with the other is to subvert the whole gospel of the grace of God. I mean, faith, think about it this way. Did faith live a perfect life for you? Did faith die on the cross for you? Was faith raised from the dead for you? Was faith ascended for you? No, that's the Lord Jesus. But now we have faith in this great Savior, the Lord Jesus. The ground of our salvation is the Lord's work. The means by which we receive is faith. And that means 
perfect work of Jesus is accepted by the Father, and an imperfect, weak, struggling, yet true faith is enough. Because the righteous are just the righteous will live by faith. Spurgeon was all hung up on all his sins and he said, we fled from Christ as from the devil and ran to the Virgin Mary and St. Barbara. I mean, You've got to go to a softer side of God after all. His teacher, Staupit, said, why do you torture yourself with these thoughts? Look at the wounds of Christ. Look at the blood of Christ shed for you. It is there grace of God will appear to you. I dare not, Luther said, and cannot until I repent sufficiently and become a better man. They head to their destination, and Luther became so sick he thought he was going to die. And on his deathbed, he thought, he was only a sick bed, but on his sick bed, he thought over and over and over, the Spirit of God brought to his mind, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith. And I'm glad it's that because there's only one other option if you'd like to go to heaven, and I assume you do. You either trust in the one who perfectly obeyed and died for your sins and confirmed it by the resurrection, or you perfectly obey God. How's that going? <laughs> Romans 2.13, the doers of the law shall be justified. How are you doing? What are those little marshmallow things that you buy during Easter time that are shaped like little chicken? Peeps. Have you ever heard peeps from this pulpit? I'm going to redeem peeps for you. It's an acronym now, not a sound that the chicken makes. Perfect, entire, exact, perpetual. God requires as creatures, because He's holy, He requires perfect obedience. How are you doing? Entire obedience. How are you doing? Exact obedience and perpetual obedience. That's not good news. That's called the law. And if we were able to do it without Adam's sin, it, we would go to heaven. But now it's only theoretical. But the good news is Jesus, the God-man, perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually obeyed for you and everyone who will believe. Now, to me, that is great news. Can you imagine that Jesus said I always do the things that are pleasing the Father. The Father says of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And when you, dear Christian, trusted in the triune work of God, trusting in Jesus, your Savior, God sees you like you've never sinned, and God sees you like you've perfectly, entirely, exactly, and perpetually obeyed. I think that's pretty good news. Because the other options are, if you look at Romans chapter 3, you know where Paul's going. Everyone needs to know that we have to be quiet when God tells us we're sinful. And he says in chapter 3, verse 10 and following, a bunch of Old Testament quotes, many from the Psalms. This is kind of a Jewish technique. It's called string of pearls. One Psalm to the next, to the next, to the next, to try to make a big point. And many call this not really a necklace of string of pearls, but mainly a noose for everybody. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. I need a Savior. I need some good news. That's not good news. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Very familiar verses. And he ends in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, you're a sinner. You need to perfectly obey. Do this and live. It speaks to those who are under the law 
What's the purpose of preaching the law to unbelievers? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Why do we preach the law to unbelievers? So they might eventually say, you're right. I stand guilty before God. I have no excuses. I'm not going to talk about evolution and this and that and syndromes and diseases. I'm a sinner and you're right. I stand before you, judge, and I'm guilty. Lloyd-Jones says you do not become a Christian until your mouth is shut and you're speechless and have nothing to say. You put all your arguments away and you produce all your righteousness and then the law says guilty. So I ask you the question, dear congregation, if you receive forgiveness, regeneration, justification, all these great gifts of God, the only way you receive them is through the means or instrument of faith. Do you believe? Are you trusting? I know many of you are, but maybe there's someone here who's not. Not trusting in the Lord Jesus. One day you'll die and stand before God. You need to be right, perfectly right, perpetually right. And God offers you freely. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything. It's a free offer. Are you trusting in Jesus? Question number six. Here's where we speed up, right? Question six. Do we have different gospels for different people? Do we have different gospels for different people? What does Paul say? It's the power of God for salvation, verse 16, for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That summarizes everything. Every person, Jew or Gentile. And simply what Paul's saying in context is, Paul first went to the Jew, historically, with precedence to the Jew, and then went to the Greeks or to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. What I'd like to remind the congregation here today, your pastor and I talked about this at dinner the other night with our wives, or maybe it was when we had lunch. What does Santa Cruz County need? What's what's your pastor's plan for the millennials here? How do we reach the skaters? What about the surfers? What about the people at UC Santa Cruz? How, how, How do we reach... Homosexuals, what, how, what do we do? Should we go find some kind of redeeming the city model, some kind of social justice model, woke models and white privilege models? What do we need? What does a city need? Think about Rome for a second. Rome was a perfect city. Like the Geneva we've always dreamed of. No. Crime, murder, abortion, slavery, Sexual sin of all kind. And what Paul say? Well, I'm going to kind of finesse this. I've got a different program. It doesn't seem to be working, so I've got the new, improved prayer of Jabez model, purpose-driven life model. What would Jesus do? Bracelets. I mean, I've got this new strategy, and we'll cut off some of the wrath and sin, and, you know, they're never going to buy that. We never want to talk about, you know, like we're anti-evolution, or maybe it's like same-sex attracted is okay, but as long as you don't do it, Verse 15, there's a word in English in verse 16, it's for, and every good commentator or scholar or pastor would have to tell you what that for is for. Here's what it's for, verse 15, Paul wanted to come to Rome so badly, and I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And I don't care what kind of social problem you have, I have one commission. It's called the Great Commission. 
And I praise God for this church. You don't have two commissions. Because if you have a transformed culture commission and the Great Commission, this one's getting eclipsed, I'm telling you. If you have a commission where it's like, you know, we're going to kind of like, it's the fifth, sixth sola of the Reformation. There's sola, you know, sola scriptura. You've got sola fide, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola dea gloria, and sola cultura. I'll take my cues from the culture. Christians take cues from their culture and they do it poorly. Why would we waste our time on anything but the Great Commission? It's the power. I'm not saying you can't privately try to serve people and come alongside. I didn't say that. But if you want people to go from dark to light, Santa Cruz, nothing will turn Santa Cruz from darkness to light except the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Period. And if it is turned, it's only temporarily turned. Whenever I want a good cry, it even happened this morning, I think of John Payton, the missionary to the New Hebrides. And he went from Scotland and he was going to go to these cannibals. And so the Sunday school, the Sabbath school, and his church gave him a communion set. Because one day we're trusting God. He's going to change the cannibals and we're going to have communion. Payton. From the first time the Dorcas Street Sabbath school teacher's gift from South Melbourne Presbyterian Church was put to use. A new communion silver service. They gave it, the Sunday school did, in faith that we would require it, and in such we received it. And now the day had come and gone. For three years we had toiled and prayed and taught this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. And the only way that happened was systematic, faithful proclamation of a risen Savior. That's it. If people say, I've made my heart clean and I'm pure for my sin, what can powerfully overcome that? Only Jesus. Three more quickly. Number seven, what are the results of the gospel? What are the results of the gospel? Well, if the ground is the work of Christ and the instrument that we receive is faith, uh, is there an evidence once the gospel has affected us? Of course, but it's fruit, it's evidence. If you want to stand before God based on your works, they better be perfect, whether that's baptism or loving God or loving neighbor or any kind of Christian fruit, but if they're any kind of Christian work, but if it's fruit or evidence, it's perfect. That's the way we think of good works, fruit as evidence. You're saved by faith alone, full stop, and that faith won't be alone. We're not antinomians. Number eight, what if people reject the gospel? What if they say no? I just want to read these words, and this motivates me to thankfulness that I'm not going there, and it motivates me to want to evangelize, and if you're not a Christian, it should motivate you to trust. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Question nine, our last question. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ also strengthen and motivate believers? Does it strengthen and motivate? Paul talks about the Lord Jesus in the entire book, but he especially uses gospel language in chapter 1 and 16. So let's go to chapter 16 and end it there. The two bookends of Romans, gospel and gospel. Of course, Jesus pardons us. He paid for the penalty of our sin. But is there any power in Jesus? I mean, you know what? We've got Jesus down now. Let's move on to ethics and morality and holy living. What I love about this church is not just a theoretical gospel. It was good to get us into heaven, and now it's about a train, changed life. What Graham Goldsworthy really calls, this is an operational gospel church. I'll explain what I mean. Let me read the verse first. He's finishing with a bunch of divisive issues, divisive people. He says then in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. He, he mentions Satan for the first time. But that enemy, that mortal enemy is done, conquered. Verse 25, is the gospel for Christians too? Is good news about Jesus more than just taking care of our sin debt? Is it making us powerful to obey the Lord. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you, that's the word where we get steroids, to give you stability. Paul says, I'm going to establish churches. Okay, who needs strengthening? Do you have a trial this week, a temptation? You're thinking, I've got to go back to work, or for you, some of you ladies, you wake up at work. I need to be strengthened in my Christian life. We need fortification. What strengthens me? TED Talks? Let me ask you this. An unbeliever... You say to them, I'm going to worship on Sunday. What do you think happens in our church service? What do you think they'd say? Singing, praying, and a nice lecture on morality and ethics. That's what they would say, most likely. If then they said to you, what should I expect at church this Sunday if I go with you to worship? What would you say? At this church, you would say there'll be some singing, there'll be some scripture reading, talking about who the Lord Jesus is. And then we're going to hear a message from the Scriptures, someplace between Genesis and Revelation, about the Lord Jesus. Because the pastor here is concerned about state before God, justification, and living a holy life. And God sanctifies through the preaching of who Jesus is. Let's think about it for a second. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ... I was taught this way, and I'll teach it to you. You're in a car, and you've got GPS, and you'd like to go somewhere. The GPS doesn't get you there, does it? It just tells you, good job, or stop it. Turn around. It either accuses or excuses you. What makes the car go? The engine. There's nothing wrong with the GPS. Like the law of God for a believer to guide you and to, to norm you and to tell you what to do for His glory and you're good. There's nothing wrong with the GPS that says, do this. Don't commit adultery. Love God. Love neighbor. But what's the motivating power? 
A scolding preacher telling you every week you don't do it, get going? Now, there's nothing wrong with law from the pulpit. But if it's only law, it breeds self-righteousness. It breeds despair. So how do you motivate Christians? We, we, we know what we're supposed to do. Law is good. Paul says what gives me the motive and the strengthening power is the person and work of the Lord Jesus. I mean, just think about how good the Lord was to you to save you and to rescue you. And the Father didn't spare His Son for you. He, he loves you. Does that make you say, you know what, nah. I mean, you've got a kid and you say to the kid, you're kind of messing up a little bit and I'm not really sure you're even my kid. I'm going to give you a bunch of laws and if you do those kids, you'll be mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Son, I know you're struggling. Daughter, I know you're struggling. I love you. Mom and Dad, pray for you. I don't, our life would be incomplete without you. And you know what? I used to struggle too. And uh, I, I just, I love you. What motivates you? The answer is, if you're a thinking person, a good father motivates. And then you do the law. Where is Jesus in many churches when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification? And I'll tell you where he is. He's not to be found. He's assumed but he's not to be found. Sinclair Ferguson, the ability to focus our gaze, fill our minds, and devote our hearts to Jesus is a basic element in real Christian growth. It strengthens, it stabilizes. Walter Marshall, you can't love God if you're under the continual secret suspicion he's really your enemy. You can't love God if you secretly think he condemns you and hates you. When anybody says, here's the secret of Christian life, I always go, you're trying to sell books. But Horatius Bonar said in his way, God's way of holiness, he said, the secret of a believer's holy walk is, what do you think he'll say? His continual recurrence to the blood of the surety Jesus Christ. All fancied sanctification which does not arise wholly from the blood of the cross is nothing better than Phariseeism. That's evangelicalism. Spurgeon, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote on my breast to think I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. The gospel's good news, is it not? Bow with me. Thank you, Father, for your word. We are very, very thankful. Would you please motivate some folks here today, all of us, to live a holy life commensurate with our calling, knowing who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.